Welcome to the Moneyliners podcast on this Thursday, November 17th. This is Chris Nichols, CEO of Moneyliners.com. And today we're going to catch up on those college football coaches that we missed yesterday as we took a moment to pause and reflect on the gun violence and the tragedies that struck the University of Virginia football team and the students at the University of Idaho. You know, I've been thinking about a particular coach uh, for much of this football season, and I'm going to save him for last. But I'm going to ask a few questions first and get my listeners to think about how we got to the place that we are today with these contracts that coaches get. Now, I've always been a fan of guaranteed contracts for players because of the dangers that they face on the football field with a potential career-ending injury or definitely a season-ending injury and still getting paid. But the difference between players and coaches is that unless a coach gets clobbered on the sideline by a Derrick Henry or maybe trips over a uh, blind judge's chain, I'm not sure why their contract would be guaranteed. And if you look over, say, the past decade, the contracts have gotten worse and worse and worse. And so I want to talk about a few of those contracts today that didn't make sense to me when they were signed and some that most more recently have gotten completely out of hand. And compare that to people within the traditional workforce, whether they be a CEO or a COO or maybe a VP of sales for even a Fortune 500 company and kind of compare the two and ask listeners, how did we get here? So my favorite one that started it all, in my opinion, was back when Gus Malzahn signed a lucrative contract to remain the Auburn head coach for an extended period of time based upon his success with Cam Newton. You know, I thought when Gus signed that contract that he should give Cam at least 25% of getting that contract deal because really I believe Cam was the type of football player at the college level that made Gus Malzahn. You know, I I was talking the other day about did Brady make Belichick or did Belichick make Brady? And I still think the jury's out on that. I think that was a perfect combination, but Cam Newton made Gus Malzahn a very wealthy man as evidenced by Gus's inability to coach at Auburn post Cam Newton. So let's talk a little bit about Gus's contract. You know, he signed the contract um, and and it was an extensive contract that was paying him uh, a very large amount of money. And one of the caveats of his contract was that if he got fired, obviously for not winning football games, he would be paid immediately $10.275 million. So you have a bad season or two, and the day you get fired, you just got $10 million. And then on top of that for Gus, he received an additional $2.68 million each year for the next four years, whether he coached or not. Now that, that was a new era of coaching contracts. Because prior to the Gus Malzahn contract, the standard was if you took another head coaching job at another university or in the NFL, you were no longer being paid under the prior contract from the university that fired you. 
Gus's was different. At the time, it was a new precedent. Gus was going to be paid whether he got another university position as head coach or not. So Gus racked up about $21 million during his termination period and is now a head coach at a much smaller, less pressured school. So Gus set the standard. You know, more recently, Scott Frost fired from the University of Nebraska, $16 million payout. Charlie Crist fired from the University of Wisconsin, $11 million payout. Herm Edwards, which by the way, I have no idea why Arizona State University thought Herm Edwards was a great choice as head coach. You know, after his tenure coaching the NFL, he went into broadcasting. And if you watched Herm in the broadcasting uh, station, sitting at the panel with all of his colleagues, Herm's a strange cat. And how he managed to get the Arizona State job was baffling to me. Now, I know he had ties with Arizona State. I know that that was a big piece of it. But Herm Edwards wasn't a really good coach in the NFL. And it was almost like an experiment gone bad at Arizona State. However, Herm Edwards got an $8 million payout. So Charlie Crist, Scott Frost, and Herm Edwards should be fishing from a pontoon boat right now in a big lake somewhere, not really looking for coaching jobs because they're going to get paid for the next few years money that will set them, their kids, and their grandkids up for life. Let's flip over to the NFL for a second and talk about a gentleman that was a hot coaching commodity uh, right prior to getting hired down in Carolina. Matt Rule had some success in the post-Art Bryles era at Baylor and the scandal that took Art and the Baylor University program to the brink. So they brought in Matt Rule. And Matt did a pretty solid job. Uh, he was a really good Big 12 coach. But yet, he, it wasn't enough for Matt. He needed to take that step and see if he could be a successful NFL coach. And of course, a desperate Carolina Panthers team was longing for uh, the next best thing. And Matt Rule was that. So Matt Rule is now fired. Fired earlier this season uh, based upon Carolina's abysmal performance on the field. And Matt Rule is getting paid $40 million. $40 million to not coach. Let me say that again. Not four, 40 million for Matt Rule after being fired from Carolina. So let's, let's flip it over for a second to some good coaches that are grossly underpaid and a couple that I think are about to get a big fat payday. You know, I'm going to talk for a minute about one of my favorite coaches in college that just seems to get the job done year after year, quietly, stoically, a strong leader on the sideline with not a lot of talent coming into the university, but he still puts a winning team on the field and you really never hear much about drama or issues within his program. 
And that's Kyle Whittingham up at the University of Utah. Now, I, I had the great privilege to go and watch a couple of University of Utah football games when I lived there. Kyle's a great coach. Uh, I think he, he would be able to write his own ticket about anywhere he wanted to. Uh, perhaps the SEC or the Big Ten, but Kyle's happy in Utah, and uh, that university is is glad to have him. So I, I really like Kyle. I'd put him in the top five of my favorite coaches. Two other coaches that I think have done a remarkable job uh, turning a couple of programs around: uh, Brett Bielema in at Illinois. I mean. <laughs> I, Brett, we, we got to get you on some sort of fitness workout, buddy, because it's uh, it's a struggle. But you're a good dude, and you're a great coach. And what you've done at Illinois just to make them competitive on the field with anyone that you're playing is remarkable. Illinois has been bad for a very long time. Uh, Lovey Smith couldn't get it done, and you've stepped in and gotten Illinois to the ranks. Uh, so great job. You know, Brett was always a good coach um, at Wisconsin and and Illinois, uh, sticking, you know, getting him back into the Big Ten after a failed experiment in Arkansas uh, was a good decision by Illinois, and I think they're going to hold on to Brett for the long term. Good old Mac Brown down in North Carolina. Uh, you know, Mac was a great success in Texas. He had Vince Young, so. You know, Mac, Mac came from North Carolina and then went to Texas, but it had been a very, very long time for Mac before he took some time off, I think four years off, before returning back to kind of where it all started for Mac in North Carolina. And he's put a very competitive North Carolina team on the field uh, these last three years that he's been the head coach there. Um, and they continue, he continues to do it. I think he's 120 years old, but... He's kind of the grandpa coach that you respect and like as a player, uh, and I really like Mac Brown. Then we're going to talk about the guy down in Rocky Top, Josh Heupel. If you want to circle a coach that is about to cha-ching for a contract extension for a very long time, and I highly urge the Board of Regents at the University of Tennessee to get the blank check out hand Josh the pen and ask him to write his own numbers on it, you want to talk about a remarkable turnaround. Now, I know that Alabama's not the Alabama team of old, but to beat Alabama for the first time in 15 years and then to really play Georgia pretty tough in the first half before they pulled away from Tennessee, uh, Josh is a good football coach. And finally, after the horrifyingly failed experiments um, of Dooley and, uh, at, well, since Phil Fulmer, you've had Lane Kiffin, you've had Dooley, you've had Cheney, you've had uh, Jones, Hoke, and then Pruitt. None of those guys got anything done at Tennessee. It was failed experiment after failed hire after failed experiment repeatedly since 2008 when Fulmer went into the athletic director role and retired from coaching. Josh Heupel is in Knoxville to stay, and the Board of Regents are about to pay him big time. And then let's talk about my favorite football coach in all of coaching. 
He's probably my favorite football coach, I would say, certainly in college, but potentially in college and the NFL. You know, I said it the other day on our NFL uh, podcast, talking about the NFL coaches. Uh, Doing more with less is the sign of a great football coach. And he's having a terrible year in Chicago. Um, He fought tooth and nail with Ohio State a couple of weeks ago. But Pat Fitzgerald, pound for pound, talent for talent, team for team, year in, year out, I think is the best coach in college football and potentially the best coach in any, at any level of football. And yet he stays at Northwestern. The minute he decides to put his resume out amongst the college ranks, he will get many phone calls and potentially triple or quadruple his salary at Northwestern. You know, I commend him for being loyal and committed to the university that gave him that opportunity. But he is a tremendous football coach, Pat Fitzgerald. I'm going to flip it back to the con artist. (laughs) There are two I'm going to talk about, and and that's exactly what they are. They're con artists. Um, My first con artist of the college football ranks is currently in Austin chanting hook'em horns although his horns aren't very strong. Steve Sarkeesian got his start under the great Norm Chow uh, at USC as a coordinator and uh, worked on the Pete Carroll staff uh, that was obviously very successful with Matt Leinart and Reggie Bush. And then Sarkeesian went to Washington where he was average, mediocre, uh, around 500, maybe a little better here and there. Uh, Sarkeesian didn't play lights out. He had a solid offense. He had a big spread offense. He's one of the first widespread offensive coordinators up in Washington, five receivers, throwing it all over the field. Um, but he, he then eventually left the University of Washington and got the head coaching position at USC. And we know that Steve had significant issues with alcoholism, and it was a battle that he was really struggling with. And unfortunately, it cost him the job at USC. And he was, uh, you know, went into rehab and and dealt with those issues personally. Now, I'm very happy to say that Steve seems to be fully recovered from that bout of alcoholism. And I know that um, it's a very serious disease, and I've seen it impact people uh, close to me. But Steve Sarkeesian, once that was over, he then went and rode the coattails of of Nick Saban uh, for a while in Alabama until recently he got the uh, promotion to head coach at Texas. So my question to the University of Texas, what had Steve Sarkeesian done up to the point that you said, this is our guy. Name one successful season that he had that was lights out, that he did on his own, that wasn't with Pete Carroll or wasn't with Nick Saban. Give me one. It's silence because there wasn't any. Steve Sarkeesian had never done anything on his own 
as a head football coach. So now at the University of Texas, 500 ball at the great UT is not going to cut it for those fans, those boosters, or the board. Steve Sarkeesian's not a good football coach. But guess what? Just like Gus Malzahn, just like Scott Frost and Charlie Crist and Herm Edwards, next year when Steve gets fired from Texas, he's going to just be fishing on a boat somewhere on Lake Travis and enjoying his time in the great Lone Star State. But there's a con artist out in college football that's even bigger than Steve Sarkeesian. Probably the worst contract I have ever seen, heard of, experienced, watched, thought about in the history of all professional sports and all college sports. When this contract was signed, I thought to myself, what in the world does this man have on somebody at this university? Because this is shocking, astonishing, amazing, incredible. And I was, I was sickened and I was saddened because I thought about that amount of money just going down the tubes The only other person that I thought compared to this contract was Jimbo Fishers at Texas A&M, which, by the way, is proving to be another bad hire. So I'm not sure how much more time Jimbo has as an Aggie coach. But the thing about Jimbo's contract is he's going to get paid $86 million either way. $86 million. Jimbo Fisher will make as the Texas A&M coach whether he is fired tomorrow, next year, or doesn't get fired and loses every game for the rest of his time in the Aggie uniform. He's the only other coach with a contract that can compare to this gentleman that I say is the worst contract ever in all of sports. I know this team well, happens to be in the Big Ten Conference, and they happen to be about three and a half hours north in Michigan. His name is Mel Tucker. Mel Tucker floated around in and out as a defensive coordinator at the college ranks, spent time as a defensive backs coordinator with Ohio State, Went in and out of the NFL with the Jaguars, the Chicago Bears as a defensive coordinator. He got a shot at as interim of the Jacksonville Jaguars for five games. Finished at two and three. And then, from that great interim record, got the job at the University of Colorado. Where he accomplished two things. Number one, a five and seven football record. And number two, if you read the article about the dishonesty that he portrayed and and fed the University of Colorado's Boosters Club and donors, I'm not sure that I would have put him on my list to give him a job. So after the 5-7 and season in Colorado, he was called by the University of Michigan State as Spartans to replace the great Mark D'Antonio. Now, Mark D'Antonio 
was paid roughly $1.5 million a year, and he was a great football coach. Came out of Ohio State, went up to Michigan State, had a great career there, led, led to some huge upsets of the Buckeyes. He's one of the best, um, and Mel Tucker was hired to replace him. In 2020, Mel Tucker's first year, which was ended by COVID-19, was 2-5. and five. So in 2020, Mel Tucker was 2-5, and five, which is right on par with the 5-7 and seven record that he had accomplished at Colorado. Then he went on to 2021, where we began to have a real football season. Mel Tucker had a good season, 11-2, and two, with a victory, another victory over the University of Michigan, his second in a row. So when he beat Michigan and finished his 11-2 and two football season, the University Board of Regents took out a checkbook and signed Mel to a 10-year, $95 million contract. Placing him right behind Nick Saban as one of the highest paid coaches in college football by far. 10 years, $95 million. Now, compare that to, let's say, Ryan Day. There's about a $3 million difference between what Mel Tucker's getting paid and what the most successful coach in the in the Big Ten is getting paid today at Ohio State and Ryan Day. In addition to that, his salary is about double that of Josh Heupel at Tennessee. Mel Tucker has produced a record of five and five this season, five hundred ball, and his five losses have been by double digits to Big Ten conference opponents. Now. If Mel Tucker gets fired tomorrow, or next season, or two seasons from now, producing 500 ball, he'll never coach again. Intentionally, he'll never coach again. Because he will get $100 million, a tenth of a billion dollars, to lose football games. So when we look at these contracts, to my point when we open the show today, and you compare those to that of, say, a CEO or COO, VP of sales in corporate America, say a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, typically that CEO has a base salary, and then they have incentives if they accomplish X, Y, or Z. X can be revenue growth. Y could be stock price. Z could be expense reduction. Usually it's a combination of all three and it just comes down to EBITDA. So basically EBITDA, for those of you who don't know that word, is just the bottom line. How much money did the company make after all their money came in, all the expenses went out, all the taxes were paid? Here's my bottom line. So a CEO gets incentivized for being successful, i.e. winning. The more I win as the leader of this company, the more I make. 
there isn't any CEO deal that I've ever seen that's public knowledge of we're going to pay you $100 million even if you run our company into the ground and we go bankrupt. Yet in sports, within any of the sports, basketball, football, baseball, both players and coaches have contracts that mean nothing in comparison to their level of productivity. A baseball player could be getting paid $35 million a year and strike out every single time they come to the plate. A coach could be getting paid $10 million a year and go 0 and 10, and they still get paid. Now, that seems very backwards to me. Why not pay coaches based on success or incentives? The more games you win, the more we pay you. The more points you score, the more we pay you. You sign a quarterback and you say, we're going to pay you a million dollars. But if you win the NFL MVP, we're going to pay you 10 million. And that MVP vote obviously would take care of itself. That would tell you that you're probably winning games and they're probably performing at a high level. There are some incentive-laced contracts that come to players that maybe are coming off of an injury or uh, are at the later stages of their career. But why would you not have every NFL player contract incentivized with a clause that if you get injured and it ends your season, we will pay out X dollars to protect you and your family? You see, I don't know what incentive is in place for these coaches to win football games once that ink is dry. For example, Matt Rule. Yeah, he was on the hot seat in Carolina. He was flipping between P.J. Walker and signed Baker Mayfield and you know had some turmoil in the locker room, if you want to say. And it, Some people don't have the intrinsic DNA to be successful and win just because. Once they sign that contract and they know they're going to get paid regardless of winning or losing, some people will not care at all if they lose. A player will not care at all if they ever see the field. So until owners and university board of regents begin structuring contracts differently in the opposite manner that they are today and similar to that of CEOs and CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, I believe that coaches will continue to lose and players will continue to barely play and not care about their performance that contributes to winning. Now, as we move into next season, there will obviously be some changes, both at the college ranks and the NFL. I hope that owners and these university boards become a little smarter based upon some of these big payouts that they're witnessing to these coaches that have no incentive to coach again. 
There are only a handful of coaches that I would pay guaranteed money to. One of them is Nick Saban. One of them's probably Ryan Day. In the NFL, certainly Bill Belichick, Sean McDermott. They want to win. They want to win every game, whether they're getting paid a dollar or a hundred million dollars. And those are coaches that I would pay guaranteed money to. They don't have it within their DNA to quit or lay down or not give it all of their best effort every single day. But not everybody's wired that way. And I think over the last couple of years, we've seen those that are not. The idea that Mel Tucker is a $100 million man at 5-5 five and five with five double-digit losses to conference opponents is baffling to me. But what's more baffling is that Mel Tucker got the contract that he did. It makes zero sense. Michigan State's a good program. They could have gotten a really good coach. I certainly would have done everything I could have in Michigan State to get Pat Fitzgerald to come just a hair north, east, and been my Spartan coach. Pat Fitzgerald looks a little bit like a Spartan. I think it would have been a great fit to replace Mark D'Antonio. But instead, you've got a guy that came from Colorado at 5-7, and seven, showed you an example of what he could do at 2-5, and five, beat Michigan a couple of times in 21, and you paid him sackfuls of money. So right now, you're getting what you paid for, Spartan fans. Best of luck with Mel Tucker in East Lansing. I'm Chris Nickel signing out on November 17th, Moneyliners podcast. Have a great day.